You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and this is The Living Writers Show. My guest today is novelist Jem Shepard. Sorry, I did it. I did, you know, I'm just going to have to stop right there and I've say... You've become French all of a sudden. In my head, preparation, it's all been Shepard, I ask you, and I go straight into French. Right. Apologies. But welcome, Jim Shepard. It's great to be here. <laughs> you are the author of, of <laughs> so much. It's going to be a day. Right. Um, so the author of two short story collections, um, Love and Hydrogen, Battling Against Castro, and six novels, um, Flights, Paper Dolls, Lights Out in the Reptile House, Kiss of the Wolf, Nosferatu, and the book we'll be discussing today, Project X, your most recent, mm-hmm. as well as some edited anthologies. All of that stuff. And in All fact, um, your introduction reminds me as well of why the, it's difficult to call a collection something like Batting Against Castro, because everybody who talks about that calls it Battling Against Castro. Oh, heavens. Um, so you're in uh, that rich tradition of people who go, well, that's what it should have been that's titled. That's what it should have been it? titled, yeah. Um, that title story is about um, a bunch of knuckleheads who go down to uh, Cuba to work on their baseball and end up finding themselves uh, facing Fidel Castro as a pitcher because Castro was, in fact, a pitcher and would often, as a political stunt, pitch against the Americans. But everywhere it was reviewed, people thought it was an anti-Castro thing and it was battling against Castro. And so I would get these letters from, you know, like Miamians going, thank God for your book, Battling Again. And I'd be like, oh, my God, <laughs> I'm never titling a book this again. <laughs> never, never. Well, I mean, and and my mistake was just dreadful. But, um, but I can see perhaps why um, folks might default there. Not only is that the word you expect on the page, but you've been described in one interview I read as the patron saint of the maladapted um, <laughs> The Village Voice has called you a pointless master of middle American disaffection, second shoe-dropping comic rhythm, pop cult radiation, and the deceivingly unsimple art of inarticulation. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like there's a cause. There is a cause. <laughs> there's there's, a, a, cause reason, there's a reason that you do everything you do, Ashley. You should keep that in mind. <laughs> in fact, when you look at me, you go, that's really a shepherd. That's not a shepherd That's not a shepherd I mean, at look all. Look at the beret, you say to yourself. Right? Listeners, there is no beret. There is no beret. There is no beret, but please imagine one when I mispronounce. Well, let's talk a little bit about Project X. Will you um, sort of situate us with you the book, and then we'll go and I'll have you read a little bit. Okay. Um, the book is um, based on my own miserable autobiographical experience as an eighth uh, grader in Bridgeport, Connecticut, um, and it was researched in... Um, as well in a private school in Los Angeles and a public school in Massachusetts because I didn't want to write a historical novel. I was uh, talking to Rick Moody about The Ice Storm, and he was complaining that uh, as wonderful as that book is, he was getting a lot of people coming to him and going, I love that book. I mean, I thought you had the bell bottom so perfect, man. You know, and, and he was like so tired of being considered the guy who just like recreated the 70s. And I didn't want to do that in Project X. I didn't want people to be thinking first... Um, wow, he really captures an American moment. And I also didn't want people thinking, wow, schools were terrible back then. <clears throat> so I wanted to make sure, um, as I started writing my own experience largely, um, that schools were still as bad as I remembered them. And I, to do that, I wanted to go to both uh, a fairly um, wealthy school and a, and a middle-class school. So the uh, schools I went to sort of spanned both the country and the class divide, and I was um, both 
unhappy and happy to discover that schools are as bad as they ever were. And not were, much has uh, changed much in junior changed. high. Um, there's a lot more tracking than there used to be so that the, the students are being, in a kind of Darwinian way, they're being identified as salvageable or unsalvageable. And um, the salvageable ones are getting a lot more attention is usually, is usually the way it's breaking down. But the, those people who are considering it kind of a holding pen and are smart but not doing very well, interested me. And as I remembered, they're getting uh, very little out of uh, what's going on. But it wasn't so much about, the, the novel wasn't so much designed to be a critique of what's wrong with our schools as much as uh, to sort of remind people how apocalyptic that mindset is of adolescence, you know, where everything is just a catastrophe um, and everything is incredibly great. And you just go from one to the other. And I was really struck by how many times um, something disastrous either was just narrowly averted or could have been narrowly averted. You know, it's like a kid who was genuinely suicidal on Thursday. Um, if he could just get through Thursday, you know, Friday, he'd be like, yeah, it's not so bad, you know. And and that sense of um, uh, how much serendipity goes into a situation like uh, Columbine um, and that sense also of how much we as a society want to immediately find those outside reasons that create Columbine. Um, powered the book in a lot of ways. Um, I'd been, I'd been really annoyed with all of the uh, Talking Heads takes on the situation. You know, uh, this is about uh, values, and this is about if only there weren't so many video games and all that sort of stuff. And I remembered vividly um, in my own eighth grade a, a boy um, starting a lunch table discussion um, about whether or not he should bring in his father's rifle and just kill as many people as he could and it was a this very, is when you were in school yeah and this was a very serious discussion we all none of us thought oh what a funny thing he's talking about we we thought okay what are the pros and cons of this um and it ended up the table ended up being um pretty unanimous that it was a bad idea but what i remembered uh, was so um eloquent was that we thought it was a bad idea because he wouldn't re really be able to kill very many people before they got him uh, so it was pointless uh, because the, it, was a, it was a rifle, rifle right. so there you are. It's but what I, remembered, what I remembered vividly was people saying, well, you know, it would be great if we could bring in an automatic weapon. That would be great. And I'm not sure the table would have voted the way it did if he'd said, well, actually, I have a machine gun. Because then we would have been like, well, you know, with a machine gun. You can wipe out a lot of you folks. Could, you'd hold them off for quite Because it isn't really about – what was interesting to me also is, as I thought back on it was it wasn't really about – um, killing a lot of people, although God knows there's God knows there's a lot of rage involved. But it was also about um, that sort of peculiarly adolescent paradox of um, wanting everybody's attention and wanting your own suffering to be center stage. And one of the things that uh, Klebold and Harris, I think, were trying to do was create a kind of theatrical event where everybody was not only in fear and awe of Klebold and Harris, but were saying implicitly, "What's wrong with these two boys?" Why, why, you know, why are they doing this? You know, that kind of thing. And there's some sort of Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer pleasure in thinking that goes on after your death. You know, I think Tom Sawyer has that famous scene where he gets to watch his own funeral, that sort of narcissistic dream. Mm -hmm. But you also want to be there for it. And so you need that moment, and it's especially important to adolescent boys, I think that moment of power where you're sort of like, all of you bow before me, all of you look at me, you know, that kind of thing. And boy, automatic weapons are the best way to that you can think of. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about adolescent boys and, and that power in just a second. But let's jump into the book and okay. give folks a flavor for um, 
Yeah, one of the things that's interesting about it, when I read from it, I almost never read, you know, the, the it's building towards a kind of Columbine-like event, and they're trying to decide whether to do it or not. And I almost never read that stuff. So I'll often read passages early on, and people will go out and buy the book, and then they'll go, oh, my God, I didn't know where this was going, you know. <laughs> So this is from the beginning of the book, and the book's told from the perspective of a seventh-grade boy. Right, and he has essentially one other friend, um, and this is from very early on, uh, and he's already had his first bad day in school, and now he's lying um, in bed. All the lights and the TV finally go off around midnight. My dad peeks in to make sure I'm not on the computer or sharpening a spoon to cut out his heart. You asleep, he says. Completely, I tell him. I have the covers over my face and a hand off each side of the bed. Try to avoid any felonies on day two, he says, though I know you already set a standard for yourself. I think Mom's waiting for you, I go. you got some mouth on you, he says. Good night, I tell him. And I can't sleep. The digital clock on the nightstand makes loose little flipping noises when the minutes change. I put my underwear over it, and then I can't take it anymore and have to see how much time has passed. 114, 151, 154, 155. I lie there swearing like I'm calling Jesus from Christ on my pillow radio. The flipping noises keep going, each one getting me closer to school. I get up and go to the bathroom mirror. My nose is eight feet long, and I've never had a haircut I liked. My glasses are crooked from always being broken. My lips are too big. If I get any skinnier, I'll be able to pull a sock up to my neck. Somebody help me, I go. I squat on the floor with my hands behind my head and rock in place. You look worn out, my mom tells me at breakfast. Can I just have orange juice, I go. I'm worried about your weight, she goes, while she watches me drink it. My dad isn't even up yet. He's an econ professor at the college in his first class on Tuesdays until two-something. Your pants are ready, she tells me to cheer me up. If you want to wear those green pants you were looking for... At the bus stop, I squat again. I pull my knapsack by, by the straps up to the top of my head. The two ninth graders waiting with me look weirded out. That girl is on everybody's shirts like Satan, Flake goes at lunch. She's like evil incarnate. Did you ever notice how many people around here wear green, I ask him. Everybody wears green. Yo, a seventh grader says as he passes our table. Flake gives him a mini wave. What's he want, I go. Flake's looking at the dessert line. I want like a million billion dollars just for travel, he says. Yo, faggot, a ninth grader calls from a table across from us. When we look over, he lobs something he's got wadded up. It's off by like six feet. Me and Flake make like we're looking looking for it way off in the distance. The kid wads up something else, but someone else whacks the back of his head with something, and then they get into it. Two girls from Sixth Period Art, Michelle and Tawanda, ask if they can sit with us. Free country, Flake goes. They give him a look and turn to me. So listen, Michelle says. When her jeans ride down, you can see the Victoria's Secret on the elastic band of her underwear. We have to do this world of color thing with three people. And, Flake goes, they look at him again. Tawanda says, you're really good, Michelle says to me. She's got ponytails that start way up on both sides of her head. She says, you're a really good artist. You're really good, Tawanda says. Thank you. We are speaking about Jim Shepard's book, Project X, and that's from the beginning of the novel. There's a there's there's hope in that moment. <laughs> there's, there's the you're a really good artist. There's hope. Yeah. Um, and the book, however, has a series of kind of bad days of you know, and and the 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 trouble that junior high poses mm-hmm. for a lot of kids. Um, 
Will you speak a little bit about how you weave hope through a book? Yeah. It's a mysterious process, I think, whether kids sink or swim in these kinds of situations. And it's easy, I think, to also imagine that everything is external forces. So I've read or seen a lot of those sorts of narratives where um, things just keep getting worse. And so the poor kid, you know, if only somebody, some teacher had said, you know, you're okay, then it would have pulled right out. And to some extent, of course, we do react to external stimuli. But I was interested in the way in which we both react to external stimuli and resist internal stimuli. And so one of the things, and I also wanted in terms of the design of the book <clears throat> to remind the reader how much the reader is hoping against hope, you know, that things will pull out. And so um, one of the things I try to do as the book goes along is provide him with reasons to not do this because I want the uh, – I want to break up that sense you have of um, a kind of um, tyranny of events on the outside. Oh, if only he hadn't had a bad birthday party, he would have done this. You know, he wouldn't have done this kind of thing. So I'm very interested in the way, um, and, and this was my own experience too, the way in junior high some things that happened would seem to change your whole day. And you'd be like, God, that was so, she said hello to me. That was so – I could go for a whole week with that. And then the way some days you were just like mulish, you were just stubborn and, you know, and people would go, you know, I really like you, Ashley. And you're like, fuck you, you know, and you're like, what does the world have to do, you know? Because at some point, even though they're adolescents and even though, yes, they're poor kids that are worked on by um, all sorts of factors, they, they, they are agents of their own, you know, uh, behavior. And I didn't want to abandon the notion that there's something inside uh, people, that's a weird alembic of all sorts of different things that um, is resistant to that kind of outside stimulation. So even if you get an A on the test, you might snap at your best friend the next, you know, next period or whatever. Well, we're going to take a short break, and then oh. we'll come back and talk some okay. more about this. You are listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is Jim Shepard. We're talking about many things, but particularly his book, Project X. Time stands still, all I can feel is the time standing still as you put down the keys and say don't call me please while the radio plays. I think I need a new Welcome back. This is The Living Writer Show on WCBN. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Jim Shepard. We're talking about his book, Project X. Let's talk about Generation Y <laughs> in light of letters. Project X. Right. Yeah, we'll go through the alphabet. Um, so Generation Y, let's define the way researchers define it, beginning with um, folks born in 1979 mm -hmm. and until folks born in, say, 2002. So it's a big swath of folks who are listening to the show today. Right. Um, and you mentioned that this book is drawn, that, that a lot of the, the, you did research in two schools, one mm -hmm. in um, sort of an upper middle class school and one in a uh, middle class school. And you also drew a lot on your own experience from growing up in the 
Can I, can, will you give me a decade so we can contextualize? <laughs> <laughs> Ashley's looking at me in the, Which generation are you? the early Pleistocene, the Pleistocene, is that right? No, no, no. Uh, no I, I was in uh, junior high in the early 70s. Okay, so we've got junior high in the 70s and then junior high in the late 90s, right. early aughts. Right. Um, so you're growing up with a different generation, and I'm wondering, the, the ways in which Gen Yers are characterized has to do with short attention spans. They're kind of a me generation, um, very creative, lots going on. Let's, um, they're not joiners right. like club. I'm not going to be in part of the club. What are you talking about? Um, I'm going to do my thing um, now, and right. then I'm going to do something else in 10 more minutes. <laughs> right. um, and I wonder if you would speak to the ways in which you considered or thought about or found difference, um, aside from automatic weapons, <laughs> <laughs> what were the sort of differences you found in the kids you were remembering and the kids you were thinking to portray in this book? Um, I guess some of the similarities are ones that you would expect would carry across. For example, um, Gen Wires are often accused of being, you know, a me group, and uh, you'll never meet to an adolescent group that isn't a me group, essentially. I mean, that goes way, way back, and it's not unique to Gen Y, and I really doubt they're more narcissistic than any other group of adolescents, given that adolescents are almost entirely narcissistic. It's you know, hard it's to like, go more yeah, than totally. How do you get totally. more than totally, right? Because it's like... <laughs> You know, you go, God, 8 billion people just died in China. And they go, really? How does that affect me? I don't understand. You know, should I be sad? You know. Um, but one of the things that did seem different was, um, as you said, one of the other cliches about Gen Yers is they're not joiners. Um, and that earlier generation, there was a real um, division between those people who were the plugged-in people and the people who uh, weren't. And I think that the... the the perceived percentage of who is in the, who's a, a joiner, who's doing something, uh, was quite different in, in uh, the group that I'm writing about, or or the group that I experienced. I should say I'm trying to pull the two together. But the essential adolescent uh, paradox is the same, and that is um, you always feel like you're the one person because the the the, the, the sort of form this narcissism takes is I'm the only one who's not doing X or I'm the only one who's doing Y or everybody hates me or whatever. And and of course, it's demonstrably untrue, um, but you still feel it. You still feel as though you're at the very bottom of the pecking order or you're the only one who didn't join the ski team or, you know, that, again, there's that, there's that apocalyptic way in which almost all adolescents speak, which is in, um, and think, which is in um, absolutes. You know, everybody hates me. And, and then parents make the mistake of trying to, now does everybody hate you? I don't think everybody hates you. And as soon as they begin that, the adolescent's like, you know, why am I even talking to you? Because you don't not, get it. Not going to work for right. me. Because what adolescents also understand is, is, is they're using hyperbole. You know, they, of course they know everybody doesn't hate them, but that's not what they're claiming. Right? What they're saying is it feels, it certainly feels as though everybody who matters hates me. And right now you don't even know who matters. So why are you talking to me? You know, that kind of thing. Let's break adolescence up now that we've, we've sort of done the generation <laughs> thing. Let's break adolescence up into boys and girls because okay. um, Project X is about boys. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned in the first part of the show um, sort of the ways in which boys are kind of dealing with adolescence. And and it's it's a different – I mean, the girls in the book are doing the project of co- – the color right, project right. and um, fixing their hair and, and all kinds of other things. And the boys are plotting an assembly murder right. massacre. Um why Why did you choose boys for this book, and um, did it have anything to do with what was going on in the sort of zeitgeist of the moment, the Columbine incident, um, 
other books and movies, Gus Van Zandt's Elephant, what came out two, one or two years before? Project no, Elephant came out, out just, just, I think, as... Uh, right around the same time? Yeah, right about the same time. Um, and it wasn't so much a zeitgeist thing, although obviously it was harder to imagine Klebold and Harris as girls, um, partially because um, adolescent aggression takes a different form in boys than it does in girls. Um, you know, the the joke that most parents in my generation has is something like, you know, oh, you have girls, congratulations, they won't beat each other up. Instead, they'll just give each other, you know, eating disorders or something like that. There's a way in which all of the, the aggression is turned inward and, and channeled with girls of that age in ways that become intensely social, kind of weirdly social. So it becomes like, do you hear what Ashley said? I can't believe, it. you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Um, and and uh, the boys' aggression takes more outwardly flamboyant forms and becomes more performative in ways that tends to lead more often to somebody should get a machine gun, you know, which is a, a suggestion doesn't even come up with groups of girls usually. And it's not because their parents don't have them. You know, it's that, that that's not the impulse they would have to to express their aggression. Instead, they might say something like, you know what we should do? We should just drum Ashley out of the group. Let's just do that publicly. Let's just say Ashley can't be a part of it. And you're like, what a horrible thing. But it's an entirely different way. Of so there was that that interested me. There was also the fact that I teach undergraduates, and one of the things that's quite striking about undergraduates is um, that it really um, makes clear to you that that there's a kind of a, a maturity curve that girls are ahead of boys with until they get to a certain age. Like I've taught graduate uh, MFA programs and have noticed no difference really in the maturity levels of boys and girls. By the time you get to the 20s, boys are pretty much caught up, I think, and they're equally immature. But <laughs> Nobody knows what's going right. on by the time college but, rolls around. But between like 12 and 19 or so, I think boys are, are quite a bit behind the curve in terms of emotional maturity. I mean, girls are having their own problems, but boys are... are you know, I think that's probably part of the reason why we seem sort of have it hardwired at that age that, you know, it's very unusual for a girl to go out with a younger boy, you know, and it's not at all unusual for a girl to go out with an older boy. And it's not that it's just status, although that's some of it. There's this sense of, well, that's who I belong with. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm 15 and I'm a 17-year-old boy seem about, you know, that kind of thing. So that also puts boys in a in a difficult position because they're having more trouble coping with their emotions uh, and they're looking around and other people seem to be doing it. So like in Project X, as you say, you know, um, my uh, protagonist, Hanratty, can look across the table at a girl like Michelle and go, well, she's dealing, you know, I mean, she's making her art project and she doesn't seem to want to hang herself. Uh, you know that it's not to say Michelle doesn't go home and cry herself to sleep necessarily, but it does uh, it does make the boy feel even more of a loser and even more of a what's wrong with me? You know how come these people can handle this kind of thing? So it, it makes the boys more given over to weird those weird intensities I think than the girls are. That's just my experience. And was it this? Well, actually, I'll step back. I was going to ask you one question, but your last little comment there makes me think of another. Wow, it's um, like a conversation. Yeah, it, pretty much. Wow. <laughs> Lucky us, our <laughs> listeners. Um, so when um, you've written about, in, in your stories and in your other books, you, you are not afraid at all to write from perspectives that are not even remotely your own. Mm -hmm. I mean, in this one, you claim some autobiographical um, expertise. You were an adolescent boy. Right. Um, but say, for example, in w one of your stories in the collection Love and 
rock, hydrogen. hydrogen. I'm going to go off into music and call right. it love and, ro- yeah. love and rockets. Um, love and hydrogen. You tell the story of two gay men on the Hindenburg. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, directly autobiographical. Directly autobiographical, right? right. You were not born yeah. <laughs> um, when that happened. Um, you must have channeled it. Yeah. Um, no, but uh, but my so my question has to do with. You, you've chosen in this case to, to talk about something that you have sort of direct experience to. That's not always your choice mm-hmm. in your, in your, when you're writing. And when you were thinking about this particular project, um, did you gravitate toward, did, did what was happening in, at Columbine sort of bring up all of this stuff for you as an adolescent and therefore sort of provoke the book? Or did, how did you come to this project as opposed to some of the others? I think that Columbine was a way to help me... Um, transform what was directly autobiographical material into something imaginative as well because I found myself saying, well, well, I knew kids whose parents had guns and I knew kids who were equally as miserable and as alienated as Klebold and Harris and I was one of them and so why didn't we take guns and go kill somebody? And um, that allows me to both access autobiographical material but also to remind myself that this isn't a memoir that in fact um, I need to exercise the imagination. And so... Klebold, if it hadn't been for Columbine, I wouldn't have been driven back to that misery because I'm sure I repressed it otherwise. Um, But once I had Columbine in my head, then I was able to bring the two together. I'll often get people saying, boy, where do do you think you can write about gay crew members for the Hindenburg? Or, um, you know, there's a a story in Love and Hydrogen narrated by uh, John Ashcroft, or there's another one narrated by John Entwistle of The Who, the bass player for The Who, and they go, where do, you, where do you get off thinking you can do that? And I'll often say, well, where do we get off thinking we can do anything? You know, what makes us think we could narrate our sister's sensibility? What makes, us, what makes us think we could narrate what we were like at 10 years old? We don't really remember that anymore. Um, all of this is an act of imagination. All of this is an act of hubris. And at some point, you have to say to yourself, well, wh- why were we given something as amazing as imagination if we're not going to use it. You know, let's try to just fool, fool somebody and sort of go, you know, I'm a wizard. I swear to God, I'm a wizard, you know, and then see what happens. And have people go, you don't sound much like a wizard, really. Or go, cool, I'll go with that for a little while. I mean, we do want to hear stories. So when somebody says, when somebody opens a story by saying, you know, I am Grendel, you sort of go, all right, I'll give it a shot. You know, you don't sort of throw the book across the room, but you go, Okay, you claim you're a, a monster from, you know, prehistoric England. Well, tell me all about it. You know, I'm, I'm going to give you a chance. You know, one of my stories is narrated by um, the creature from the Black Lagoon. And I think you have to have some 13-year-old boy inside you somewhere to sort of find that an appealing <laughs> option. But you also register that the reader is aware that this is a little bit of a stunt. And so you have that to sort of overcome um, so that if I say to you, Hey, you want to read a story narrated by the creature from the Black Lagoon? You you think to yourself, well, it won't be boring, but why should I? What what's in it for me? Uh, right, 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 right. And that's sort of sort of what the story has to negotiate, you know, because we come to literature thinking that we're going to uh, find out uh, useful stuff about how we live, um, and a story narrated by the creature from the Black Lagoon wouldn't seem to promise that. Um, so we sort of go, okay, well, what else? What else is going to be in here that's going to engage me? Mm-hmm. Now your character, main character in Project X, um, Hanratty, is a is a good artist. Um, there later on in the book, he um, is is um, 
given an award right. or, or made it to the finals for, for something that he's drawn. Um, however, his imagination is not something that he draws on in terribly constructive ways, and he imagines plots and all kinds right. of things. Right. And I'm w- wondering, you tell the book in the first person, you tell the book from his perspective, and even to the point of... Um, not only is the dialogue written in his voice, but the ways in which he constructs dialogue. So, for example, I go, like I go, right. I go to my friend. Right. You know, sort of you use those um, qualifiers yeah. instead of, yeah, the locution instead of uh, he said, I said, that sort right. of thing. Um, and I'm wondering if, if there's sort of an effort to give voice and imagination to this character in the ways in which you've chosen to tell the story, um, even though the character doesn't necessarily use his imagination. Right. I think that I think there is, and I think there's a, you know, there's a way in which when you decide to do, uh, uh, decide to sort of shut yourself inside that voice as opposed to allow yourself outside it every so often in an omniscient way, you're conceding that um, a young person has all sorts of incredibly um, sophisticated perceptions that he or she can't quite give voice to, that if you could stand back and say, here's what he was feeling at that point, even though he didn't really know it, you could be quite a bit more complicated and and, uh, nuanced, but um, they have to do the best they can articulating it to themselves um, with the language they have. And what you can do is in some ways create uh, enough contextual richness that you can sort of um, fill in the gaps. There's a wonderful and famous story by Raymond Carver called Cathedral, in which a guy who's really inarticulate has uh, an amazing sort of epiphanic uh, connection to a blind man who he's been very mean to. And the story ends with him um, having this amazing kind of physical communion with the blind man as they draw a picture together. And the blind man says, well, what do you think of that? And and Carver's narrator says finally at the end, it's really something. (laughs) And that's the best he can do in terms of language. But we have gotten to a point where we know what he means by it's really something, and we know he means something like this is a, a, a psyche-altering moment for me. This is an amazing connection. And you try to do that when you're inside a character like that, and you also try to <clears throat> register some of the poignancy of having an imagination that's bigger than your ability to articulate it, um, some of the tightness of it, essentially, the tightness of that box you're in. Well, we're going to take another break. It's um, the top of the hour. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This is The Living Writer's Show. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is Jim Shepard. We're talking predominantly about his book, Project X. This is WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My guest today is Jim Shepard. We're talking about his book, Project X. And I'm wondering, Jim, if you would mind reading a little bit more from the book. Oh, I have just enough narcissism to be happy to do that. 
Um, this is later in the book, and this, I think, is after our hero's uh, only friend has gotten his uh, butt kicked by a boy named Matthew Svikas. Um, he hasn't given up on Matthew Svikas. I can see his brain going, trying to figure something out. When I tell him again about my idea about waiting, he goes, I'll kick his ass now, and we can shoot him later. How are you going to kick anybody's ass with two fingers like that, I want to know. I'll use a shovel, he goes. I'll use a rake. You can't use a shovel, I go. You can't use a rake. What do you care, he goes. I'll use a chainsaw if I want. He won't, though. So let's find him then, I go. Bring your rake. You think I won't, he asks. But then we end up just sitting in his room, and he's in a bad mood for the rest of the day. Why don't you put bug powder in his milk, I go. I'm looking at the booklet that comes with his Great Speeches CD. Something knocks me to the floor on my face, and he's jumping up and down on my back with his knees. I scream for him to quit it when I can, but he doesn't, and I'm finally able to twist around and get him on the side of the head with my fist. Once he's off, I keep using my right hand, and he blocks it with his arm, but, he, but not completely because he's trying to protect his finger. He straight arms me in the mouth with the heel of his palm. Then we both go nuts. His mom runs upstairs and separates us. It takes her some time, and she ends up with a scratched face. We're screaming at each other, and she's screaming at us. One of his fingers is bleeding through the bandage. Fucking maggot, he keeps screaming. Suck me, I scream back. Stop it, both of you, his mom screams. We still won't stop trying to beat on each other, so she finally drags me down the stairs by the collar. Don't come back here, you fuck, he yells down the stairs. Fuck you, I yell back up. Stop it, his mom yells, shaking me so hard she almost breaks my neck. She shoves me out into the driveway and slams the back door. She calls my parents when I'm walking home. I hear you and the night Rider thought you were in the Thunderdome, my dad says when I walk in the door. I don't know what that means, I go. Are you all right, my mom wants to know. I look in the mirror in the bathroom. My teeth are bloody and there's dried blood on my chin and some on my shirt. My back hurts where he was jumping on it. My lips cut up again. Otherwise, I'm fine. I feel like I'm going to cry, but that's out of frustration. It's all right, my mom says when she sees my face once I finally come out of the bathroom. I stand there in the middle of the kitchen like I got a load in my pants. My dad knows enough not to say anything. Want me to help you with your face, she goes. Yeah, I go, and start crying. Thank you. Now, we haven't talked about the parents, um, or even the teachers in the book, but um, particularly the parents, and to a lesser extent the teachers, figure pretty prominently. This narrator is aware of the adults in his life and the ways in which they're trying. Mm -hmm. um, and you yourself have children about to enter this Right. age group or they just one has just one begun has that just process yeah gone into adolescence so i wonder if you could speak a little bit about the ways in which you conceive the book as a parent um and not just as the former adolescent yeah <laughs> it's a good question because one of the things that also frustrated me about the klebold and harris stuff was how self-righteously and easily people were able to say well this is a parental failure i mean you have to just step in at a moment like that and Anybody who's dealt with adolescence knows that one of the first things that happens is you shut down communication to the parents because you you don't a you don't know how to put into words what you're feeling b you don't think they'll understand c you're just feeling annoyed most of the time so my older boy who's now 13 has already turned that corner where you say what how was school today and he goes fine you know what happened nothing nothing happened whatsoever nothing whatsoever right and at some point you have to say to yourself this is what all adolescents do. And I'm going to try and get this information elsewhere. I'm going to try and tease him out of it or whatever. Or you, you say, well, when something happens, he's going to have to let me know. And because also it's such a, an apocalyptic time, it's very hard to get a fix on what 
needs intervention and what doesn't. Do you, just to clarify before you go on, apocalyptic time meaning this moment we're all living in or the moment of adolescence? Moment of adolescence, I should. Thanks for that clarification. Uh, so uh, when you get to be about that age um, and you have a bad you know, music class, you're, you're just incredibly black mood. And it's hard to know as a parent, um, wow, should I really intervene with the teacher? Should I sit down and make him talk to me? Or should I go, look, he had a bad music class. He's in a black mood, but tomorrow he'll be fine. And that impossibility of knowing exactly what the right amount of intervention is, is something that I have enormous um, sympathy for with the parents. And it's something I'm about to be heading into myself. And so that helped me a lot in terms of reminding me that it wasn't a matter of, oh, if only the parents took any interest at all and, you know, had said, um, golly, I love you, then it would have turned every, everything aside. And again, I think it also adds enormously to the reader's sense of maybe this can be Maybe this can be diverted, or can't this be diverted? Can't this be stopped? His parents don't want it to happen either. They're trying to help, you know, that kind of thing. Um, adds to um, the, the, the uh, sad inexplicability of some of these events as opposed to allowing us to um, draw too easy a conclusion. Like if, you know, again, external events all came together in a particular way and that forced these boys to do what they were going to do kind of thing. Well, given those external events and how they come together and the, the, that, that sort of tidal wave that is unavoidable, how do you wake up in the morning as a parent and not just flip? <laughs> That's a good question, even without the tidal wave, I think. Um, part of what it means to be a parent is to suddenly realize that um, there's this person out there that you care a huge amount about who really needs help more than, say, a lover needs help necessarily negotiating his or her day. But there's a limit to what you can do. Um, you know, there are a lot of parents, especially in this generation, who um, try to combat that by doing things like volunteer work at the school, you know, so you get these people who go and they read books to the students. And they, and even that is just, uh, you know, poignantly inadequate, right? So you're like, I'm really worried about how Billy's integrating. So between 10 and 11, I'm going to go to his class and read stories and keep an eye on it. But that actually is more painful than anything else, because then you see Billy being snubbed by the girl he likes and what do you do? Do you run across the room and say, you know, you should like him. He's got a lot of good things going for him. <laughs> or do you just watch, you know, and realize just how powerless you are? That kind of powerlessness, that kind of um, a situation where you say, all I can do is create the best uh, growing medium that I can and hope that it works is um, – an, an extremely uh, complicated emotional position to be in. And um, it helps you with the difficult problem of empathetically trying to project yourself into various sensibilities because you're you're always trying to do that. You know, sort of what, do you, what does he think his teacher is doing at this point? You know, that kind of stuff. Are your children aware of your work in the way that they – that you y'all can talk about that, or is it just sort of dad's an econ professor? Um, I mean, not that you are, but in the in the book Project X, dad is an econ professor. They're they're definitely aware of it. Aiden has the, the older boy has already read Project X. Um, in fact, one of the things that I often get from um, uh, as a question in, in a question and answer period uh, from people who are wondering if anybody should be writing about unhappy adolescence is, well, yeah, would you let your own kids read this? And I, you know, I think, no, I write stuff I think is bad for people. Of course I would let my own kids read this. And in fact, I would think that if I had read a book like this when I was in eighth grade, I would have at least thought, 
well, there's other people out there who are as equally miserable as I am. And and I'm sure that's part of the great attraction of Catcher in the Rye all these years has been knowing that there's this other um, there's this other person out there that felt this same sort of dire alienation was some sort of comfort. Uh, it made you feel special and a part of a group at the same time, and that's a, a useful thing. But my son, uh, the 13-year-old, is a huge fan of rock music and is, in fact, um, a heavy metal drummer and loves the Who story in Love and Hydrogen. And so he'll talk to me about uh, the story or talk to me about Project X. And the other two children who are much younger just think it's cool that I get to um, tell stories to people for money um, and travel around the country and bring toys back to them, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, they're all aware of what I do. Now, you dedicate this book to them. Is Mm -hmm. is that um, something that you always do or or particularly because of this? No, because of this book and because of the kind of anxieties I was talking about before and you asked about with parents. um, You know, Project X is in some ways every parent's nightmare. Um, And so when you have three children, you think... uh, Boy, you know, uh, there but for the grace of God go you. So here's hoping. You know, that kind of Do you think that having this sort of um, vocation and avocation that your children have access to in a way that they wouldn't if, say, you were an investment banker, um, gives you more ground to cover with them that... There's more. There's more sort of an in common. For example, your um, eldest child, Aiden, can read um, about the Who story, and then y'all can talk about it. Yeah. Or, it, it does that give you more than? Oh, I'm sure it does. And that you know, if I were if I were talking to a 13 year old about um, you know growth curves in investment portfolios, it'd be hard to keep his intention. Whereas I'm talking about you know how crazy the Who's early career were. It, it, he's quite interested in that. But it's also, I think, what I'm trying to do is train myself, going back to what we were saying before, in empathy. And that's always um, useful training when dealing with children because you're always trying to figure out how people operate and you're observing people closely. And you know, the very act of observing someone closely is a, is a gift. It's a, it's a kind of um, a way of saying to somebody, I, I have that much regard for you. I think you're that valuable. And, and of course, children respond to that. They, they like the fact... One of my sayings with Aiden is that he has a glass head, and what we mean by that is that I know what he's thinking a lot of the time, and he's deeply flattered by that. You know, he loves the fact that sometimes I'm not even right, but he loves the fact that that he had this little flicker of expression, and Dad knew what was going on in his head, and that makes him feel 